Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Hi-Fi Hour. I am here, uh, actually, I have the pleasure of talking to Jason Stoddard from Shit Audio. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's actually great to be able to finally meet you and talk to you. Um, I've been, you know, uh, emailing back and forth uh, with with Denise for a while, and, and now I'm now we're here. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, yeah, Denise, Denise is great at, you know, actually managing a lot of our marketing stuff, you know, such as it is. I mean, we, you know, our, our marketing is, I think, kind of, you know, me yammering and writing a book most of the time. So there you go. Which, which I am reading your book right now. And if for the folks that haven't checked it out yet, uh, should I do just have a, a book available on Amazon, which will be linked in the description below. Um, so I want to start out with what sets shit audio apart from the traditional structures. So a few things that kind of, um, you know, uh, spoke to me were the fact that you're made in the USA. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that you're inexpensive, you're not, it's not an expensive, uh, brand. Uh, you, you only do direct sales. Uh, mm -hmm. you don't have any cringy or gimmicky marketing. Well, and a lot of people might argue about that. <laughs> and, and you were a garage startup. Mm -hmm. So I want to go through those, a uh, few of those, just to kind of touch base on that. Um, a lot of people outsource their stuff. Obviously they either pull off the shelf or they outsource their stuff to, to other countries. What made you decide that you wanted to stay made in USA? Well, I had a little bit of experience with other companies that were doing direct sale and making things in China. And uh, one of the refrains we heard a lot was like, you know, oh, uh oh, this is not the same as, you know, the, the prototype. It's not the same as the first article. You know, I'm, I'm being very polite there. The, the words used were quite a bit stronger. You know, when you're talking about, you know, pulling, you know, half a million dollars worth of inventory out of boxes and either reworking it or trying to figure out, you know, how to deal with it, you know, with, with a manufacturer who's half a world away. Mm -hmm. And I'd made stuff in the past in the U.S. And I figured, well, when we started, I figured, let, let's let's see, you know, can can you do it, you know, at prices that make sense? And I, I actually was pleasantly surprised that not only were all of our like uh, a lot of our old suppliers were still around, or you know, you know, close relatives are, of our own suppliers, you know, the guys make who actually make the chassis, the guys who make the PC boards, the guys who do the transformers, not only were they still around, but, um, you know, the prices hadn't, you know, gone out of, out of scope or anything. And it's like, well, fine, you know, we'll, we'll make things in the U S. And so for us, that means if we have a problem, we drive across the freeway, literally five miles to our metal vendor, uh, and then have a little you know, discussion with them or, you know, our board house is 20 minutes away. Then we're starting to do some in Nevada now. So, that isn't exactly true. Um, and then, you know, our, our uh, transformers are up in NorCal. So we're, you know, we're very close coupled. It gives us, I think, you know, better, better control over what we're doing. We can, we can be more nimble. Um, and if there are any issues, it seems to be easier to work it out. Um, and like, uh, the, uh, I was asked recently, it's like, you know, how can, you know, how do you feel about the future? You know, given that, you know, there's some Chinese native brands that are, you know, that are starting up and doing things. And I'm like, I'm feeling fine. They cost more than we do. And that really stopped him. He's like, 
wait a minute. So you're making stuff in the U.S. with people getting paid like way above a living wage, you know, in California. And actually now, as of three days ago, now in Texas. Um, and it's less than Chinese competition. I'm like, exactly. That's so, correct. Yeah, I know a lot of your competitors, well, would-be competitors, are considerably more expensive. And you know what's funny is is I've noticed in this industry that the Asian market likes things that are made in the USA, would would prefer it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, which is a difference of culture, you know, because obviously here in the US, people people appreciate that as well that it's made in the USA. They'd rather it say made in USA than made anywhere else. I'm sure. Um, and that kind of segues to direct sales and being inexpensive. Uh, do you, do you feel that that kind of plays on each other? Like the fact that you're doing direct sales and not having to deal with, you know, um, distribution and stuff like that. That's how you can kind of keep the, the price at a competitive rate. You pretty much have to do direct sale. Uh, Um, it's a huge advantage. Um, we don't, we don't have to. Um, the dealers don't have to take their margin, which, you know, is what, you know, they should be taking because, you know, theoretically a great dealer is going to provide value, provide, you know, they provide a service. So they're due some margin, right? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Uh, direct sale cuts that out. Uh, some people really like that. Some people really don't like that. Uh, the, the tide appears to be going, you know, towards direct marketing. When we chose to do direct, it was very weird. Uh, I think there was, yeah, there were a couple speaker companies and there was Emotiva, you know, on the, on the electronics end that were doing it, but uh, almost nobody did. And we really did have, we had a back and forth discussion. And I think it was cemented when Mike was like, you know, Mike Moffat, my business partner said, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I don't ever have to chase down another dealer to get them to, get them to pay us ever, um, you know, it's a great day. And I'm like, well, we're going to try and we're going to try direct and we're going to see how it goes. And direct has gone very well. And as you probably know, uh, some of, some of the older names in audio have started, you know, at least experimenting with direct really have gone, you know, fully direct since we've done that. Um, so it appears to be, if you can provide a good enough experience to the customer, if you can provide enough support, it seems to actually, you know, be a great way to do it. The loss is, of course, you can't go to a dealer anymore. You can't compare a bunch of things. You know, you can't, there's no single focal point um, where, you know, theoretically you can get a better read on what's, what's good for you. So that's, that's a downside, but uh, so far everyone seems to really love direct. It it keeps everything in house and keeps your process controlled. So I can understand that. Um, Now being from a garage startup, uh, a lot of, huge, huge influential companies, uh, obviously Apple included and, and many others have started that way, you know, um, very humble beginnings, you know, yeah. um, can you tell me a little bit about how that progressed? Was it, uh, was it, what, did it scale over time or was it overnight? Hey, we're, we're going to go get a, a factory and an office and everything. We actually toughed out, toughed it out in the garage for, I think around, just under a year. Okay. Um, and by toughing it out, I meant uh, we we actually started in a garage full of cars, a three-car garage with three cars in it. Um, and then a really less than a month in, I said, okay, let's move one of the cars out so we have some space to work with. And then we had this palatial one-car space 
you know, it was, it was, everything was assembled and tested and shipped from there. And Lisa, in fact, still has uh, my wife. She used to do uh, shipping and she has this, this piece of plastic that she put down um, and she has it hung up in our, in our kitchen that says, you will put nothing here, meaning this is my shipping space. You know, I, I need to have this for shipping, for packing and shipping. And so everyone was proscribed from putting anything there. That's, that's how packed in we were. Um, we built out the, the attic, you know, for storage and we put stuff up there and we were using the rest of the garage for storage to the point where we couldn't get the other cars. We we're putting storage in the backyard if it, you know, if it wasn't, you know, weather sensitive. And then finally I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> this is like 11 months in, I'm like, Mike, so now we have two or three guys coming to my house every night to actually build stuff. In uh, HOA and homeowners association neighborhood, I said, "You know what's going to happen really soon is someone's going to pick up the phone and go, hey, this is not a great idea.' So that's when we got our first little shop, and it was a real special place. It was very inexpensive, but and it was actually an old newspaper uh, shop that was like eighteen hundred square feet, and we went there. But yeah, we, we started in the garage because I didn't I didn't know how big this was going to get. I didn't, you know, I figured, oh, this is a nice little hobby business, you know, maybe, you know, make a car payment or something, you know, maybe we'll put a shed in the backyard. And yeah, by, you know, eight months in, it was like, this is not going to be a hobby business. And by 11 months in, it's like, we better get the heck out of the garage. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been kind of up from there. We, I think we spent just under a year in the first shop and then, we took a 5,300 square foot place and then we added on a bunch of units. So I think we're about 16,000 now in California and about 10,000 in Texas. And Texas is where we're moving production of all the smaller units like, uh, you know, Magni Modi, you know, Bailey, et cetera. And maybe Magnus and Modi's. Awesome. Yeah. Now, now in your book, um, you do uh, go over entrepreneurship a lot and mm -hmm. I mean, as you know, entrepreneurship can be uh, a dicey and uncertain leap of faith that most people take. Um, but you told Mike Moffat that your product was either going to sell or you were going to have Christmas presents until the end of time. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure that resonates with a lot of seasoned entrepreneurs, but for the younger crowd or for the people that are just getting started, what advice can you give those ambitious entrepreneurs that are in that same exact situation where they're, they're on the cusp of taking that leap of faith? Oh boy. I think the main thing I can say is if it's your money and it probably should be your money when you're starting up a company because it feels more real, you know, you, you have to actually pay attention. If it's your money, spend as little as possible, you know, starting up in a garage is, there's no shame in that, you know, starting up in a friend's garage, if they're, you know, if you think they'll remain friends, um, this is a whole, whole other thing too. Um, but, but basically we started up very, very lean. I mean, uh, I literally almost shut down, you know, the whole idea when, um, I had to buy $800 in screws, you know, to actually place that order of like, you know, this is $800 of screws. I mean, I literally will never use these for anything. You know, if, if this thing goes boom and, and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't actually take off. Hmm. So you gotta, you gotta have a little faith, but don't overspend, you know, especially early on. Um, and 
you know, if you can take as little money out as possible, it's just let it grow, you know, put it back in. Um, it's probably not what you want to hear because I mean, what you want to hear is like, cool, you know, go to a VC company, you know, get a whole bunch of money, you know, pay yourself a nice salary, get stock options, et cetera. I mean, that's what a lot of people, um, you know, think of. And I've had a lot of friends who've played that game you know, up in, up in uh, San Jose and stuff like that. And it's really funny because the successes are far, you know, fewer between than you might think. And the grind gets really old. You know, you, you really need to, to wonder, you know, is it worth, you know, doing literal 100-hour weeks, you know, for the promise of stock options? Or should I do my own thing, put in, you know, put in my money and do the literal 100-hour weeks, which you'll still have to do, uh, but have control of it? So that's, that's a good point. That's a yeah. very good point. Um. Now going a little bit off topic, uh, Mike Moffitt's uh, DS, DS Pre was the first standalone DAC on the market. Uh, now, many consumers may not know that about about him and about the, you know his, his beginnings. Do you feel that your DACs are evolved in comparison to other offerings out there as a direct effect of the heritage behind Mike's experience? Yes and yes and no. Um, I, th- I think our products are different. Uh, and I, th- I think that's important. I actually, I think difference in DAX is important because right now we're at a point where anyone can go to, you know, AKM or ESS. Oh, wait, you can go to ESS. AKM's kind of, you know, they burnt to the ground in November. You can go to ESS and, you know, if you are, you know, good with code, um, you can actually put together a very good, incredible DAC, uh, you know, for not a lot of money. Um, and, you know, same thing with, with, with AKM, you know, if, when they come back in the market, it'll be the same kind of thing, except less code. Um, the thing is, you know, they're all, all the implementations are going to be similar. You know, you're using the same basic ingredients, you know, people, people like us, uh, people like cord, you know, people like, uh, ExoGal, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of companies out there doing that are doing something different. You know, cord has their way of doing things. We have our way of doing things you know cord does fpgas and a billion taps or you know whatever they're up to now and, and we have what we call true multi-bit which is basically old school dac new school d-day converters they're still you know multi-bit d-day converters meaning you know they're 16 to 20 bit you know actual bits um, and then we have our own digital filter done in dsp that's kind of reminiscent of of the you know the research you know mike did at theta so you know there is a kind of a direct lineage uh, and they're related but the code is now different of course <clears throat> and so that's what we like a lot of people will be like well they don't measure so good or they don't do this or whatever and it's like yeah it's it's old school you know here's some new school stuff it's inexpensive you know enjoy hmm. or you can have the stuff you know we've worked on a long time we think sounds better uh, we think is is more true to the music, um, but that's our opinion. A lot of people think we're crazy. <laughs> I'm serious, you know, seriously. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know. Chord gets the same thing. You know, I'm sure people think they're or PS Audio with their you know where they convert everything to 10x DSD. People might think they're crazy too. Um, right. It's right. just we're different, and yeah. I, I like I like seeing different approaches to D to A conversion because I think it's the only way we're going to actually get some progress. Right. 
Absolutely. Innovation for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you also said in your book, uh, this isn't about getting everyone to like you. It's about <laughs> getting some people to love you. And they totally do because over the years you've built this like cult following <laughs> with consumers and reviewers. Uh, was this the intention or did you have a more, you know, mainstream notoriety planned out? Uh, it's funny. I don't know if we had any intention. Um, when I, when I wrote our 10th anniversary chapter, which, you know, went up last June, um, I, I was reflecting a lot of people asked us, okay, now that you're, you know, 10 years, what's your, what's, what happens in five, what happens in another 10? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you should probably think of us more as a 10 year old human rather than a 10 year old company. You know, when we were born in the garage, I mean, I had no idea what the heck was going on at five years old. I had no idea what I'd be at 10, 10 year, you know, 10 year old kid doesn't know what he's going to do or she's going to do at 15, you know, 10 years old versus 20, uh, you might as well be on the moon. So uh, we didn't have a lot of, you know, a lot of what you'd call a a five-year plan or master plan. But it's just, I've seen so many companies, you know, that like, oh, we got to get, you know, the largest market share possible. We got to appeal to everyone. It's like, that's great. You appeal to no one. You know, that means no one cares. The, The guys who are successful, you know, over a long period of time, are typically smaller companies focused on one thing and and doing it very well. And they're not worried about like making everyone love them. Um, a great a great example outside of our industry is like, um, I don't know if you know Shun knives, the Japanese knives that you mm-hmm. can use in the kitchen. Some people love them, some people hate them. You know, they're very they're very sharp, they're also very brittle. Um, they're also not inexpensive, they're not hugely expensive. But they've just gone on and on and on and on and on forever. You know, the market is nice and stable. They've, they've seen a lot of challengers and it doesn't seem to, you know, actually affected them because a lot of people love them, you know, or at least some people love them. No one likes them. You know, people like a $99 knife set, sure, but they don't make anything like that. Um, and they aren't going to make something that you can drop on the floor or put in a dishwasher. So we're... We're kind of akin to that. We we do we do our own our own thing. We have our quirks. We're trying to provide the highest value, but we know that uh, that some people will love us and some people will hate us. And you know, the thing is, we can we can treat everyone as well as we can, um, and hopefully, some people love us. And, and so far, I think we're doing at least decent at that. I think you have quite a bit of lovers out there for sure. Um, so in your early days at Sumo, you discovered that amplifiers do sound different in comparison, uh, which led you to the realization of the philosophy of subjective objectivism. Yes. Uh, could you tell my audience a little bit more about that mindset and how it <laughs> helps when developing new amplifiers today? Yeah, I was, I was totally shocked at Sumo because I was the world's most hardcore you know, objectivist. I'm like, well... You know, I have these Carver amps. They measure, you know, much higher than, you know, Sumo amps, you know, as far as power. So, therefore, it must be, they must be better. Done, right? I mean, I even walked in, when I bought them at the dealer back in the day, I walked into the dealer and said, I want these amps. He's like, well, you should listen to others. I'm like, no, 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 I want those amps. I looked at the specs. This is, this is what I'm going to get. I'm done, right? So, I walked out, perfectly happy with them. And the guys at Sumo kept going, hey, Take, take one of our amps, take one of our big amps. I'm like, 
this thing is it's huge it's low tech it's not rated as high it can't be as good and they're like just take one amps and try it so i took one home hooked it up and went oh crap <laughs> this is wildly different and much better and these this is on a pair of hand-built speakers uh, which i actually still have today that i was very familiar with i knew what what it could do they were difficult loads so they're probably not doing so well with the carvers and and the sumo sumo stuff for you know whatever it's it's weaknesses i mean it would drive a screwdriver so you know it was it was doing very well you know and mm -hmm. it was um and so that was that was kind of my epiphany was right. It was like, okay, so there's something more to this than just, you know, just specs. And so that's what we actually do, you know, at, every day at Sumo or, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing dev work, plenty of measurement, but there's a lot of just what, you know, what does this sound like? You know, do I want to listen to it? Um, and the, it's, it's funny because we have Dave, who's our, our code guy who, I swear, he thinks everything makes a difference. You know, I mean, it's like the, you know, in what, in what, uh, you know, eh, it, it, what, you know, time you execute your code might make a difference. Mm -hmm. You know, the power supplies, the board layout, et cetera. And I'm like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, a little bit uh, more skeptical, but he's been right a lot of the times, which is really weird. Well, I, I think that's the, um, advantage that a lot of people like me, like that do reviews, you know, almost every day, we have an evaluative listening habit. So we are sitting there looking for, for the subtle changes and the subtleties of, of, yeah. of changing things here and there. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people, um, you could put, you know, one amp or another and they'll be like, Oh, it sounds the same to me, you know, but the people that are really listening for it, or obviously you, you must've had, you know, uh, you know, a, a big enough difference of sound quality that you were like, whoa, you know, this, that really does sound different. And yeah. I know I, back. And I got one for you. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're interested in that, that's the Mike early on in the development of what became unison USB, you know, our own USB interface. He's like, I got this USB interface. It sounds fantastic. I mean, you won't believe how this sounds. And I'm like, Mike, it's USB interface, you know, it's, it's bits. I honestly just don't see how it's going to be all that different. He's like, take one home, see what you think. Stick one home, plugged it in. And I'm like, oh, I mean, it's just like the Sumo thing. I'm like, holy crap, you got to be kidding me. And I'm like, so I called it Mike and he's like, what do you think? I said, it's broken. And he's like, what do you mean it's broken? I said, well, it's clearly broken because something that sounds this different is doing something wrong. Uh, and I'll be able to measure it and I'll tell you how it's broken. You know, the early versions actually were too unstable to measure on the AP. Uh, but when we finally got one that was measurable, that sounded, you know, that sounded the same as the other ones. No, it's fine. You can't measure the difference. It's, you know, it's the same as any other USB interface. Who cares? Um, but it does sound different. And if you, in some in some corners, if you say, "Hey, USB interface sounds different," they're like, "Well, you're clearly insane." Like, no, that's what I hear, and uh, we'll see how that goes. That you know, sometimes the smallest things can make a big difference. Um, a lot of people, I mean, obviously the whole cable debate that has been going on since the the beginning of audio, 
Um, you still have people that are like lamp cord sounds the same as everything else, you know? Um, but you know, people, until people actually do the, do the work, you know, and, and kind of try it out for themselves. That's when they, that's when they discover the, the small differences. And I, I think as I've grown with, uh, with audio, I, it, it surprises me every day. You know, when I hear something new or experience something new, it, it really is uh, something special. And it's, it's interesting. You, you got the Carver amps because the one thing endearing, I think about Carver in the past was how he uh, really wanted to make a, an affordable amplifier, but, but kind of take, uh, he basically looked at like the expensive stuff and said, Hey, I can do that for cheaper, you know? And, and I think that's a pretty cool way of doing things back then. Now I've noticed there's not many companies like that, which, which I, I think I would consider shit audio, uh, in that realm where you guys are trying to keep it as, as inexpensive as possible and create the most value for the customer. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right on the, the, the Carver side of things. Um, one of the reasons I did like them, they were, you know, relatively affordable and they had some interesting technology. I mean, they were doing really early, you know, class G uh, stuff that, that actually worked. I mean, you know, it measured well. Um, and, you know, sometimes I look at class G and I go, why did we go to class D when we had the, I mean, the car ramps were very efficient, mm-hmm. uh, but the, it's, I do like to look at what's out there and, and sometimes, you know, we, we will go and, and do something less expensive. A lot of times it's just like, we're going to do what we, what we like and what we think other people might like. It's like the Freya plus, I mean, no one said, Hey, I'd really like to have a stepped attenuator preamp that all that's, you know, also tube and, and, you know, you have a, a solid state on a pure passive mode. No one, no one asked for that. No, no one was doing that. Uh, sure. And we just went and did it. And that's one of the things we just can't keep in stock. Uh, I think because it is, it's kind of a unique thing under a thousand dollars. It definitely is a good friend of mine has one actually. And I find it to be very interesting. It's a very interesting device. I, I like, I like it a lot. Um, I, I get to play with it anytime I go to his house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so your, your brand is definitely contagious. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only from the unique name, but the minim- minimalist design of your product, you have, uh, you know, a very marketable uh, company and product. So uh, you go into detail in, in the book about these astronomical marketing budgets that these huge companies uh, have at their disposal. So how did you do it without the help of any type of uh, traditional marketing, sort of, sort of speak? Like you kind of just, just did it. It's, it's really, it's really two things. I mean, and the first, the first is, uh, I won't put a fine point on it. The first thing is cheap. The first thing is like, we didn't come in, you know, with a $20,000 headphone amp and then decide to like, let's bring it down. You know, we'll do a $5,000 on a thousand. Yeah. We actually started at the, at the lowest price we could do, which back then was two fifty. It was for the Asgard. Um, we hadn't even imagined the $99 product yet, but that was the lowest practical price. So we started low, um, which is, is controversial, but let's face it. I mean, if people are going to, if you want to get people to try something, they're going to be much more apt to try something that's $250 rather than $2,500. Um, and others, yeah, the name, it's just, it's unforgettable. You know, we've had very few people complain about the name. There've been, there've been a few. The funniest was a dude who's like, 
yeah, I really don't like the the hell name because that's like satanic. And I'm like, uh, did you look at the name of the company? You know, <laughs> it's like name of the company shit. I mean, so you, you, you might need to, you know, re-examine, you know, your, your preconceptions there. But the name, you know, the name actually got us a, a lot of traction just because people couldn't forget it. And the fact that it's inexpensive to try, you know, really helped a lot. Uh, and that's that's basically it. And since then, I mean, our marketing budget is paltry, you know, uh, to be very polite to it. Uh, Denise probably will laugh and go, yeah, it's, it's horrifyingly small. <laughs> uh, she's actually managed, you know, some, some big budgets before. Um, and we literally have zero people in the entire company with sales in their title. So there are no salespeople either. So we have... Denise for marketing with a small budget and no sales. Um, every every year to date, you know, we've grown. I <laughs> so I guess it's working. Yeah, and uh, I mean, apparently, this last year, uh, even though there was a lot of, I mean, you know, the the tragedy of, of mm-hmm. the uh, you know all that stuff that happened, um, audio companies have been doing better. You know, a lot of audio companies are doing better because a lot of people are, are at home and, you know, not doing anything and want to listen to some music. Yeah, I was extremely worried when about the time last year when we started going into the lockdowns and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to you know spit on the tragedy, but I mean, the sales took off and just kept going. I'm like, I don't understand this, but um, I guess, yeah, uh, staying at home. You know, and and being being comfortable and being entertained by your home is important. And so, you know, uh, some audio companies have definitely benefited from that. There you go. Now, um, you mentioned a little like, a few minutes ago about the names. So, what is the motivation behind naming the products? Because sometimes I feel like you know it's a lot of you know like like Thor is going to come down with his hammer, and you know, like yeah. what's the motive? What was the motivation behind a lot of these names? Oh, you're going to laugh. The real motivation was, um, actually, I I didn't know what to call things at at the beginning. You know, I was thinking of something simple, numerical, whatever. But that's, let's face it, that's super boring. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sumo used to use uh, a mixture of Greek and Roman mythology. And sometimes they threw in some stars just for the heck of it. They, you know, they just chose interesting names. And I'm like, I do like interesting names, but, you know, Greek and Roman's been done and et cetera. And I'm like, Norse, Norse is interesting because not only is it a little different, they named everything. I mean, they named, you know, axes, they named chains, they named gods, they named dwarves, they named houses, they named places. It's like, I'll never run out of names. It's great. And that's literally why we chose it. Uh, And plus a lot of names are really cool. So they are, Uh, I gotta, I gotta say you're, you know, I, I don't know why that guy was offended by the hell, you know, uh, yeah. reference, but it, it, it just, uh, I don't know. It's like the, the, the names fit the, the aesthetic of the product. I think, I think it kind of flows well together. You know, we, we actually, we actually try to kind of fit them. It's like, we have a, a very large, uh, monoblock amp coming out that I, I mentioned, I think, you know, some, somewhere online recently it's called tier. 
Tyr is the one-armed god of war. It's like it's a monoblock amp. It's a one-armed god of war. You know, oh, there you funny. go. That is funny. So, you know, we're <laughs> we're trying to like have some meaning in it. Um, right. Or folk bonger, which is our big ten tube amp, ten tube headphone amp we're coming out with. As everyone's like, why is it called folk bonger? I'm like, because it's the better Valhalla. It's like every warrior goes to Valhalla, you know, if they if they die in battle. But Freya chooses only the best to go to Folk Bonger, which is like her special hall. And okay. so, yeah, too bad, but it's better. There you go. I think once people start putting that together, they're going to be like, wow, like that does make sense, you know? Yeah. It, um, we're, we're trying, you know, sometimes you it make a lot of sense, but uh, no, we're, we're, we're trying, on, especially on the newer stuff, to, to make more. Jason, I think I think you're doing a great job. I think you're doing a great job. Um, so a, a bit off topic, you make a Dune reference in your book. And so I want to know if A, you're excited for the new movie, and B, what why where is Fade Rautha in the new movie? Why did they leave him out? <laughs> I I actually don't know. I okay, from from the previews I've seen of mm. the new movie, I'm like, huh. I've seen that before. I've seen that before. I've seen that before. I've seen that before. All in the '84 movie, and I'm right. like, eh. so surprise, surprise me with something new, you know. Um, I mean, but every scene they've showed, it's like, well, okay, it's it's updated. I'm sure tire res probably looks better, etc. Uh, but I'm not seeing anything surprising. I don't know. Maybe a great movie. Maybe I think it's splitting into two movies. So you know, maybe you know, more time would be good. Because the '84 one was incomprehensible if you didn't read the book, right? Um, so I'm, I'm open. I'd love, I'd love to see, I'd love to see a much better interpretation of it. And Correct, yeah. I'm sure I'll go and see it. You know, I mean, come on, I'm a you sucker got, for science fiction. Yeah, you got to. Um, you know, and, and I, I think it's kind of wrong of Star Wars to have taken so much from Dune and not you know, giving credit where credit is due. But, you know, I, I think now with the big budget science fiction films, I think it's going to have its day. You know, I think a lot of people that didn't read the books and didn't do, don't even know about the books are going to quickly learn and, and want to, you know, um, to, to get into that whole ecosystem of, of science fiction. Sorry, it's, it's a great story. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'd love to see it you know, be more popular. I'd love to see, you know, some lesser known science fiction actually, you know, get some traction as well. But, you know, that's, that can get into whole discussion on the whole, you know, studio thing of like, I'd love to see them, you know, break up their $250 million budgets and do, you know, 10, $25 million movies or better yet, you know, 90, you know, $2 million movies and, you know, one $25 million movie. But that's, that's me. And I'm not studios and I don't finance this stuff. So <laughs> that is what it is. Yeah. Uh, when I saw that reference in your book, I'm like, yeah, this, th we're going to be friends. We're definitely going to be friends for sure. Cause not too many people know about it and, or, or remember it, you know, and actually that was the first video game I ever played on PC was, was the original Dune uh, video. Really? Game, so, oh, yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it, it has a lot of uh, memories for me, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious why they didn't include uh, Sting's care. I mean, Sting's <laughs> if Sting could have came back to play it, that would have been really cool. <laughs> that would have been weird, but also appropriate. Yeah. 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 So, I, um, 
it, it may it may be great. Um, you know, it, it's like maybe they're playing it safe. You know, on the pre, you know, on the previews, but I don't know. Yet. Right. So um, now I got a different question for you. If um, if most CEOs and business owners take the time to read your book and learn from your journey, they'll quickly realize how many things they're probably doing wrong or could be doing differently. Mm-hmm. Why give away the golden blueprint to companies that could very well mimic your brand and create more competition in the niche you currently command? I'm actually not worried about competition in a niche. Um, I, I think there is, this is an extremely specialized you know, niche. I mean, it just evidenced by, I'm sure you've told people, oh yeah, you know, high-end audio and they immediately go, you know, bows or beats or, not, you know, AirPods even. You know, uh, which, you know, we would all consider, oh, it's kind of mid-grade, you know, at best. It's not, it's not high-end. Right. People don't really know what high-end is. Or they'll think, oh, you mean pro. You know, you mean pro gear, not, not consumer. We're a real small business. I think we have a, a great position here. I think if we, if we don't, you know, get complacent and, and keep, you know, challenging ourselves, I think that we have a good place here. Um, I would actually like to take some of my own, you know, things that I said in my book and maybe apply them to other industries. I, I've been, I've been joking and not really joking, but um, with some people's like, we need to make a toaster. And, and they're like, why? I'm like, because there are no U.S. made toasters. They're exactly zero, none. They do not exist. And I'm like, uh, I'm not going to get into the whole politics of like, USA made versus Chinese made or whatever. But if you want to make a toast, if you want to actually buy a toaster made in USA, I think that you should be able to, if you really feel like it. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, I can make a better, you know, $200 toaster than um, the, the British brand, uh, the dual lit brand, which is completely insane, but it is made in the UK. And so that might be a separate company. That might be something we do. Um, we may do some weird stuff. You know, that's not even in audio because I think we need to keep challenging ourselves. And I see an opportunity when there's nothing out there. I see an opportunity. And it's like, maybe we need to drive in and park on that. Maybe someone will do that before us. Cool. I don't have to do it then. I got a lot of other ideas. Uh, well, you know, it, in the end, if more companies can actually, you know, start up, without, you know, a ton of debt or, you know, without being beholden to a corporate board or without worrying about, is this the right way to do things? Or, you know, can I make a bunch of value for my investors and exit? I think the world's going to be better because we're, we're not, we're not aiming to be public. We're not aiming you know, to be the largest anything. We're just, you know, we'd like to make good products and we hope other people like them. Mm-hmm. That's bottom line. Awesome. Very awesome. And that's a good way to look at things. You know, that's a great way to look at things. Like you said, I wish more companies would share uh, your philosophy on, on all of this, but you know, they can't all, not everybody has the same goal set in mind and mindset and everything. So, um, so they they have other challenges too. I mean, to be, to be totally fair. I mean, there are companies that are going to be much more capital intensive, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, then you're going to have to, answer to the money people a lot more than, than we do. Um, mm-hmm. We, you know, we literally, you know, started in the garage and have no debt. So it's like, uh, <laughs> you 
you know, we have nobody to answer to. If we have a bad quarter, it's like, oh, well. I mean, heck, 2019 was a horrible year just because we overbuilt everything. So we actually had a loss. But then 2020 was a great year. So, you know, uh, and 2018 was great. It's like, so who cares? You know, who cares? But I might have been ousted. Mike and I may have been ousted in 2019 if it had been, if it had been run like a normal company. Because, like, how, how dare you, you know, for four quarters, you know, maintain, you know, a loss. It's like, right. well. Because we overbuilt, we, we did 14 products, which was stupid in retrospect, and we built lots of them, which is even dumber. So we, you know, we've now learned that, and I think we're doing better at managing what we're doing. We'll see how this year goes. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll come back and say, "Yeah, another loss." Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, is there a particular product uh, that you don't offer that people keep asking you to make, or and have you ever developed a product solely on the request of the consumers? We've had, it's funny, a lot of people ask us for some really strange stuff. Um, I think one of the things that keeps coming back, though, is uh, they want an electronic crossover. And I'm like, that's some super specialized stuff. You know, that that's really for people who have access to, you know, the, the upper and lower end of their speakers, you know, without crossovers. So they can, you know, they can do an electronic, you know, buy-in, you know, type setup. Uh, but people ask, keep asking for that, or they keep asking for stuff that can be integrated in the home theater. You know, I want home theater bypass. I want a processor loop. I want, you know, lots and lots of outputs. Um, you know, so far we haven't, you know, haven't really done anything to address those. Um, most of our ideas do actually draw on, you know, what people, you know, what people tell us, but a lot of them are just like, this would be kind of fun. It'd be weird to do. Um, the big 10 tube amp kind of came, it came about with, by two factors. One is like, we have a whole lot of the, the 6N, 6P tubes. And the other is, I knew that we could do far better than Valhalla. You know, it's a, it's a pure tube, you know, an actual pure tube amp. Um, and I always wanted to do something big. And I experimented with, you know, actually um, the 6AS7 tubes and things like that. I did some, I did some stuff like that. And I went, eh, it's, it's nice, but it's kind of like what other people are doing. So it evolved into this wacky thing that nobody is doing because it's completely insane. Of um, it's a it's an OTL OCL tube amp. So it's it's output transformerless, but there's also no coupling cap. So your headphones are connected directly to the tubes. And if yeah, if that scares you, probably should run away. You know, just not come around. There's lots of protection you know built into it, but um, it's, it is unlike anything else out there. And, and when I sparked it up, I figured, eh, it actually might not be that good. It may, it may be kind of thin sounding, you know, because, uh, output coupling caps kind of tend to give things kind of a fatter sound. It might, you know, it'd be weird, but it was, it's actually one of the most addicting things we've made. And I have actually to this day kept myself from measuring it. Uh, I will not measure it, you know, other than go, yeah, the hum is, is so low, I can't hear it. I'll measure it eventually. I'll, you know, I'll measure it before we, we actually release it. But this thing was developed really just by ear. And I'm sure the measurements will be absolutely and utterly horrifying to anyone who, you know, wants, you know, very great measurements. Right. So, you know, run away. And there may be a warning sticker on it that's like, <laughs> probably, probably best not to plug in 
IEM stood because even with like eight servos keeping everything in place and DC sensing, the DC does dance around a bit, you know, 10 or 20 millivolts. So uh, great for full size, head, size headphones. I don't know if I'd be plugging in IEMs to it. Um, so it. That's the kind of thing. It's like, you know what? We may make 100 of them. We may make 500 of them. We may make 100 of them and five of them will sell or we may make, you know, 5,000. I don't know. But it seemed like a fun idea, so we're doing it. Cool. That's always a good thing to to go with your gut, you know. And right now, I'm I'm I just entered the world of headphones, yeah. uh, and I'm on the quest to find uh, a suitable headphone amp for me. Mm-hmm. And I've already tried one. I've only I've already I've only tried one, so I have nothing to compare it to. And I actually did a review on it that's going to be coming out in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I'm kind of on the on the quest. So I'm sure uh, I'll be purchasing some some nice uh, shit headphone amps and, and and trying them out and everything. Because um, I when I was a kid, I always listened to stuff on my headphones because I didn't want to disturb my parents, you know. Right. So it just kind of brings back that, and then as well as it's so relaxing, you know, when you have a comfortable comfortable pair of headphones. I mean, I usually I, I use my my Hi-Fi Man, or I have you know a new pair of Fostex that I really like. Um, yeah, you know, I just need like every time I plug it into my phone or whatever, I'm like, it, it just feels like it needs to be driven. You know, it feels like it needs that extra oomph to get, you know, that extra bass response and, and to okay. really drive the mids and the highs. So. Well, especially, especially if you're doing planers. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It's funny because in the office here at home, I either use the Jotunheim two, you know, in the office, which it's good all around, you know, drive pretty much anything or, the Folkvonger prototype is kind of sitting behind me. And, you know, when it's, when it's cool outside and, you know, I don't mind a, an amp that sits there and dissipates like, I think about 120 Watts at idle. I mean, you can literally kind of feel the heat coming off of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a great sounding thing, but it's, it's so completely and utterly insane. I can't, you know, with a straight face say, Hey, you know, Oh, everyone should have one. It, yeah. it's like, no, it's completely nuts. You know, I, I do get uh, a hard time sometimes from other audio files because I like tone control and yeah. the Loki was actually something that really like jumped out at me. I'm like, that's a cool product. You know, that's, that's a really good idea because a lot of the higher end stuff doesn't come with tone control anymore. Yeah. Very little. I think Macintosh is starting to put it back on a lot of their stuff. Okay. Yeah, I think they're, you know, on their, inter- like they have integrated amps, so at least have bass and treble or bass, mid and treble, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So starting, starting to come back. Um, and we have a, I just announced we are going to have what we call Loki Max, which is a crazy, uh, it, it actually uses relay potentiometers uh, rather than actual pots. Uh, it's a six band pure LC. So it's all inductor capacitor, no, you know, no gyrators, nothing like that in a Freya size chassis. And when you, and it has remote control and presets. So basically when you preset, when you hit a preset, all of the knobs turn to the preset and all you hear all the relays clicking and everything. It, it's sad, but a lot of people probably buy it just, you know, because it, it does fancy things like that. <laughs> it, won't, it won't be cheap, but it will sound really good. It has all of the technologies we can throw at it. You know, it's got Nexus in it and everything. So, um, 
that should be coming. I don't know, maybe maybe summer. I'm always wrong, so you know, take that with a huge grain of salt. No problem. Um, but it, it has been released to production. Okay. Um, so so it's so it's in the works. That's good. That's good to know. Um, well, I know a lot of people are also worried about introducing new components into their signal chain. You know, they think it's going to yeah. introduce more more noise and and things of that sort. But uh, I also read in your book that um, you you focus you guys focus a lot on eliminating that unnecessary noise. Um, yeah. That that is that one of your main focuses to make sure you have a nice clean signal chain. It, it absolutely is. And I mean, even even a, a, the standard Loki Mini is like super quiet. I mean, the noise floor is down around like minus 140 dB. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's some minor power supply spikes, but I don't think there's anything above minus 125 or so. So it's it's super quiet. And the big Loki is even better. Uh, you know, we, we focus on that a lot um, because you can argue about, you know, audibility of distortion. You know, where does it come in, you know? Can, can anyone really hear anything different below minus 80 or not? Or, you know, should you be shooting for minus 120 or 130 or you know, whatever you know, the latest, latest and greatest. Is. But one thing, everything, anyone can hear is hiss and hum. And when you have a, a system that, that hums and hisses and does, it, yeah, it's not great. Um, you know, people really hate that. So, yeah, one of the things we, we try to do is keep that low, of course, if you have a ground loop, then that might throw everything off, uh, which is which is a whole nother you know whole nother thing. AC powered equipment is great until you plug a bunch of stuff into different outlets in the wall, and suddenly it's like, hey, I've got a hum that won't go away. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, try plugging it all in one place, and then try using hum X's or you know hum eliminator. But yeah, it's it's we do pay a lot of attention to that, and. Uh, it, one of one of the great things about being kind of on, on the headphone side is literally the first thing you'll hear about any headphone amp is how quiet it is because you'll be like oh i think it's great with iems and someone will go well i have 126 db efficient iem and i can hear a little hiss it's like <laughs> so there you go you got to be really good at uh, at that if you want to do all the headphones yeah i have seen um a few reviewers, uh, you know, review your, your, your gear and the, it, I mean, it's always positive. You know, you never, you never see a negative review, um, about your products, which I think is awesome, you know, um, especially at the price point, uh, you, you're, I think you're getting a lot more value than people are anticipating, you know? Yeah. And, and like I said, we're, we're trying, and mm -hmm. one, one of the, one of the things, the, the separation between Texas and California a lot of people have asked about that. And it's like, the reason we're doing that is Texas is going to be about the products that are high volume. We need to make a lot of magnets and modis, you know, and they have, have to be all perfect. And we, but we have to do huge volume. Uh, you know, a Vidar, a Ragnarok 2, you know, big, becoming big Loki, you know, even a, a you know, Jotunheim, you know, et cetera. Those stand in California where we actually have, you know, product teams that will be building and testing them. And so that's, that's more of a slow thing. You know, it's like, okay, take, you know, take your time, make sure they're right. You know, put them on the burn rack, leave them for four days if you want to. Um, and, and that's really why we're doing it. So we can split up into teams here in California and then in Texas, it can be, you know, more streamlined. It's like, okay, you know, we're going to build, 
you know, pick a number, 500, you know, or a thousand, you know, magnets a day, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and be able to package that and ship that. And right now it is, you know, it's a bit disorganized, you know, because we're three days into it, but once actually it's worked out in the next week or so, it's going to, it's going to be huge. We'll be able to increase amp production two or three times here and finally get out of, you know, back orders and we'll be able to make a lot more in Texas and, you know, finally get out of, heck, we're, we're in back order, I think on, uh, even on Magna Heresy right now. So the back orders are huge. We just, we can't keep up. Uh, right. We have to fix that. Yeah, I, I have noticed that uh, there's a huge demand right now for your products. So, yeah, and we, we really gotta we gotta take care we gotta take care of the orders and take care of the distributors and maybe even get a few things back on Amazon you know someday. But <laughs> right now, I mean, it's like so you know serving the distributors in Amazon has been almost impossible you know, as mm-hmm. of last year, and uh, we do need to get back to that, <laughs> but. Holy moly, there's a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's what happens when you grow, you know, you gotta yeah. you gotta well at least you have that you know, the factory in Texas ready to go and things can start, you know, being produced and, and things can move forward. Yeah, because we, we started building a couple of days early last week in Texas and as of Monday everyone was you know, full staff was there and and building and shipping, so uh, it's a that's a huge huge milestone. That's um, a good sign. That's a good sign. Alex basically had to you know take what he did in the last eight years and do it in about six weeks. Oh jeez. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it it was it was rough, but um, he seems to be holding up pretty well. Awesome. Well, Jason, I, I want to wish you the best of luck with uh, with everything. I want to thank you for being on my show. I think we definitely got a chance to talk about some great stuff. Um, I would love to have you back at a later date, whenever you have an announcement to make or any, any new products you'd like to share with, uh, with my audience. Love to have you back. Sure. Actually we're announcing a new product tomorrow. It's a little too early, but, uh, as of seven o'clock tomorrow, I'm going to make something live. Uh Uh, Yeah. But we should have a reasonable number of products live this year. So maybe yeah, when big Loki goes live or something, since, you know, you, you like the idea of EQ, maybe we'll talk about that a bit because cool. we're, we're really trying to like take on, you know, the highest of the high end equalizers with that. And we'll see some people, some people love it. And some people are going to be like, yeah, you're crazy. Uh, <laughs> well, either way, I think, uh, I think it's going to be successful. So. Uh, I know, I know I'll, I'll be into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I will use, I'll use the large Loki, the, the smaller one I haven't, I haven't actually used a lot, but that's mainly just because I have, I have a lot of balanced equipment and I haven't actually had anything really to, to, to plug in there. And, and it's horrible to say that because balanced is not the be all end all. It's just, you know, it is an approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't necessarily need it. Uh, but you know, since I'm using the Oppenheim too, it's like, yeah, I'd rather have something I could plug into the balanced, uh, you know, input rather than not. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Jason, for joining us and we will see you all next week for a new edition of hi-fi hour. See you later. <laughs>